This is Glenn Leopold of Gun Hill Road, and I'm the guest on On Screen and Beyond. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. And we are off and running for another episode of On Screen and Beyond. This is episode 476. I'm your host, Brian Zemrak. And this is the weekly show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with the guests from the movie, TV, or music industry. This week on On Screen and Beyond, Glenn Leopold is going to be joining us, and Glenn covers two of those areas, music and TV. And he was a member of Gun Hill Road. He wrote the hit song, Back When My Hair Was Short. He's the subject, or one of the subjects, of a documentary on the group Gun Hill Road that's coming out very shortly. And he went on to write for Scooby-Doo, the Smurfs, and so many other cartoons. We're going to find out all about it. Glenn Leopold coming up in a few minutes right here on On Screen and Beyond. Also, it is our holiday movie preview. So let's get ready. There's a lot going on this week. It's time for Remake Madness. What's coming your way as far as holiday movies this holiday season, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Please hang up and try again. Remake Madness, as far as our holiday movie preview, it looks like the star kicks off the holiday season, retelling the Christmas story from the view and adventures of a donkey and his friends. And Junami, Welcome to the Jungle, with Dwayne Johnson, will be arriving on December 20th. That's it as far as remakes. And uh, coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way this holiday season as far as upcoming new movies? Upcoming new movies this holiday preview season. It looks like Wonder with Julia Roberts won't be a blockbuster, but it's going to be an entertaining movie on November 17th. It's about a young boy with a deformity. Get ready for some tissues on that one, I'm sure. November 22nd, it looks like Disney Pixar will be releasing Coco. It's an animated film and a lot of good reviews on that one so far. December 1st, The Shape of Water looks to be an interesting film from Guillermo del Toro. And on December 22nd, Matt Damon is downsizing. That's it for upcoming new movies uh, coming your way this holiday season. And next on On Screen and Beyond, taking you down to Sequel City to find out what's coming your way as far as sequels in our holiday movie preview. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sequel City, this holiday movie preview. Oh, well, it looks like Justice League with the DC comic heroes flying into theaters on November 17th. It's bound to be a major blockbuster. And the blockbuster Star Wars, The Last Jedi, will be exploding into theaters on December 15th. And Pitch Perfect 3 brings back the girls, and they're ready to sing. And that's it for upcoming new movies. Next on On Screen and Beyond, TV on DVD.
TV on DVD, well, different strokes. The complete seventh season will be arriving on DVD in a three-disc set on February 27th. Also on February 27th, Green Acres, the complete fifth season, will be hitting stores. And January 2nd, you can get 10 Days in the Valley with Kira Sedgwick, and that's coming out on Blu-ray and DVD. That's it for TV on DVD. Next on On Screen and Beyond, Movies on DVD. Movies on DVD, Kingsman, The Golden Circle, will be hitting Blu-ray and DVD in 4K on December 12th, December 19th. Mother with Jennifer Lawrence lands in stores, and the Lego Ninja Go movie will be flying into DVD world on December 19th. That's it for Movies on DVD. Next on On Screen and Beyond, it's TV and Entertainment Time. TV and Entertainment Time. Apple is moving along with making TV shows, along with the Amazing Stories reboot that they're working on. They now have given a two-season order for a new show, which hasn't been named yet, starring Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. There's no release date on that yet. And Shameless has been renewed for a ninth season on Showtime. That's it for TV and Entertainment Time. Next on On Screen and Beyond, it's Celebrity Birthdays. We baked you a birthday cake. If you get a tummy ache and you moan and groan and woe, don't forget we told you so. Happy birthday! Celebrity birthdays, well, November 13th, Gerard Butler turns 48, and Joe Mantegna, past guest here on On Screen and Beyond, turns 70. And November 14th, Patrick Warburton, he's turning 53. November 15th, past guest Ed Asner, here on On Screen and Beyond, turns 88. And on November 17th, Danny DeVito turns 73. November 18th, Owen Wilson turns 49. And November 19th, Jodie Foster turns 55. That's it for celebrity birthdays. As far as listener birthdays, well, Samuel C. of Tulsa, Oklahoma will be turning 38 on November 16th. And if you, a friend or a relative, are going to be having a birthday, send it to me at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. We'll all celebrate your birthday here at On Screen and Beyond all over the world and along with our celebrities. So that's it for our celebrity and listener birthdays. Next on On Screen and Beyond, we have as our guests... A man who has written a hit Top 40 song, and he also has written all kinds of cartoons that you, your kids, whoever, have been watching for years. Scooby-Doo and Popeye and uh, uh, the Smurfs, and, and it just goes on and on. Glenn Leopold is going to be joining us. He, as I said, was the guy who wrote Back When My Hair Was Short for Gun Hill Road, and uh, they are back together, and they're playing... Uh, few songs and uh, you know writing some and everything and he's going to talk all about that and he's going to talk about scooby-doo and smurfs and all kinds of stuff glenn leopold he's next right here on on screen and beyond Today on On Screen and Beyond, our guest is a writer and musician who wrote the hit song Back When My Hair Was Short in the 70s when he was with the band Gun Hill Road. He then went on to be the writer for numerous cartoons including the Smurfs, Scooby-Doo, Doug, Johnny Quest, and many, many others. In the past, he has been nominated for three Emmys, 
And now he is back writing new music and performing with Gun Hill Road on their album Every 40 Years, which is also the name of the upcoming documentary about the group. It's Glenn Leopold. Glenn, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. Thank you, Brian. I'm happy to be here. Glenn, this is exciting that uh, there's going to be a documentary coming out. You guys have a, a new album out. Uh, it, it's, it's, it seems like everything's coming at once. It, uh, it was pretty amazing. I mean, it really came out of left field. I had been sort of wondering what the third act was going to be after, uh, you know, being a musician and then, you know, segueing into animation and then kind of thinking what's going to happen next. And then it was kind of going full circle, going back together. We got together and did a benefit concert for our old manager from the bitter end in New Jersey. And that was the first time we played like in 36 or 38 years or whatever. And it went so well that, um, I thought it might be great to go back in and find a studio and record again, and we did that. And Steve's son, uh, Eric, you know, started shooting the footage right from the Benefit concert, not knowing that there was going to be a documentary in the future. And uh, so it's all come full, full circle in a very exciting way that it was totally unplanned. Now, when you started writing the, the music for the new album every 40 years, uh, is it all new music, or is it some music that you guys just didn't do, uh, you know, uh, put out back in the 70s, or, or how was that whole album coming about? Yeah, the, um, there was actually there were some of both. Um, over the years, even when I was doing the animation, doing animation writing, I would just as a kind of uh, release just to, um, you know, to do something in my spare time because I still like to write and play the piano and guitar and just kind of make up songs. I was still doing that, but there were songs that we'd never done since we only did the second album on uh, Kama Sutra on Buddha. Uh, and we never got a third album to put out. So there were songs that we were, so there were songs that we were doing then that we never got a chance to do. And uh, we decided to put them on this album. And there were also some songs that Steve had written that, um, that he had never gotten a chance to record. So we, uh, we did that. Hmm. Now, so you guys wrote separately. You never, you know, did it together. Um, actually, you know, the first, um, two albums or two and a half albums, if you consider the re-release of the Buddha album, a, uh, a half an album, um, I was really, it all started off as kind of, I was sort of a, I was singing songs at the bitter end, just myself, songs I had written, and then Steve, who I'd known from, from high school, you know, came down and we were playing, he was playing piano and backing up some stuff in the dressing room, and I said, that sounded kind of good, so we started playing, and then we had a bass player, and three-part harmony and suddenly we were looking for a record deal and when the time came instead of having it be Glenn Leopold or whatever we were looking for the name of a group so and then we settled on Gun Hill Road so it kind of started out with me doing you know all the writing and and then uh but Steve I think after the group had sort of parted ways we had some songs that he'd been writing over the years at various times and we wanted to include those and since we were footing the bill for the album you know ourselves you know no one was there to say no we can't do them or we would whatever so when we came time to do the album we put on 19 songs you know i think there were 14 of uh my songs and, and five of steve's wow so it was yeah so it was great and so some of them were songs i had written over the years and some were ones that we hadn't done uh back in the day that we performed live but we'd never had a chance to record mm-hmm. yeah now you wrote back when my hair was short correct Exactly. That was the one song, of course, that I didn't sing when we played live. And, and so when it was recorded, that was a song that I didn't sing. And it was our bass player who did the vocals on that. It was just sort of a, I won't say it's a novelty song, but it, it was kind of a, um, a, you know, a different song than some of the other ones that had sort of an arc to it. And, and the original version had some drug lyrics that, you know, were 
expunged for the uh, AM version mm-hmm. at the request of Neil Bogart, who ran um, Buddha Records back then. So, um, yeah, that was the song that became the hit, and it was the one song I, I mean, was going to sing backup, you know, Steve and I were doing backup or whatever, but Gil, who was our bass player, um, you know, did the vocals on that song. How did you decide to have Gil do it instead of you? It was just, you know, just to break things up, um, just to break just to break things up, um, uh, just to do things, you know, when we were doing something live. And it was, uh, you know, honestly, I don't know. It was just one of those songs that uh, it was almost had a, like an octopus garden kind of feel or whatever. It was mm-hmm. on, you know, that Ringo, Ringo was going to do instead of, you know, you know Paul um, <laughs> or, or John. And uh, and when we first started doing it, you know, it was, uh, like I say, it had this kind of counterculture references and some drug references. And, and so, you know, honestly, I never dreamed of it being a single until Neil Bogart kind of pulled it off of the um, of the uh, first version of the album, uh, of the guy who wrote the album on Buddha, and said, if you up the tempo and take out the drug lyrics, you know, you can have a hit. And of course, I said, I'm a songwriter and I can't change my words. And, <laughs> You know, I don't want to do that. And uh, then I was kind of sitting around one day, and I said, "Well, let me just try and do this as an exercise." And I tried doing it, and they upped the tempo. And Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise had discovered, uh, you know, the guys from uh, from Kiss, and you know, produced stories, and and then uh, Gladys Knight and other people. They Neil brought them in to uh, record the song, and it was more up tempo and had the calliope at the end. And Neil was right; it became a hit. It started to climb the charts, and it was just so surreal to have like a you know a record that you could turn on the radio and hear hear your band playing it was it was it was kind of out of body mm, yeah. at the time yeah i love that song when i i mean i can remember when it first came on you know american top 40 and i heard it and i said this is a great song it uh just just yeah it was it was one of those things that was you know originally the the original inspiration was somehow there was some filmmaker I don't even recall the name, um, who was doing a, a documentary about the Randall Island Music Festival, which was, you know, way back in the, in the 70s, in the early 70s, I think. And they were looking for a song that, um, you know, I don't know, reflected the, how the, the, the kind of idea of having a, a festival was going to be really good, but then somebody ran off with the money and it was just kind of a, a big letdown. It was a counterculture. It was like a ripoff. And, and so that's where the, Original lyrics, you know, you know, love to rip off one another, you know, while screaming right on, you know, kind of thing. But I don't know if it means that the song was ever even submitted to the filmmaker, guys, or if it was, it just kind of the film didn't materialize, or if it did, I wasn't involved with it. But then uh, we still had the song and we started doing it live, and that's how it kind of all evolved. So it was just, hmm. it was just kind of a different, uh, a different song, kind of just from the get go. It was just, you know, written sort of. Not to order, but just with something in mind, you know. Yeah, yeah. How did you guys come up with the, the name Gun Hill Road? Was it was it after the, you know, Gun Hill Road? <laughs> well, yeah, it really was. I mean, we used to take the, uh, we were all from Mount Vernon, and, uh, you know, Mount Vernon didn't sound, but White Plains was already taken by the guys that did, uh, I think, was it My Baby Loves Love, and I think it was White Plains. Mm-hmm, but, yeah. um, you know, Mount Vernon, we, we weren't going to use. Chicago was taken, and Kansas, and Boston, and, uh, it was one of those times when everybody was using different kinds of uh, names. And uh, we used to take the subway periodically. Sometimes we'd take the, the Central, but we would uh, take the subway and we'd pass Gun Hill Road, and of course you'd pass it on the freeway or whatever. And there were two different spellings of it. There was like a Gun Hill Road where it was three separate words, and there was also, I think sometimes it would be all Gun Hill is one word. 
And uh, just sort of had a ring to it, and you know, we were just kind of flailing around looking for names, and we were, had already signed our deal with Mercury, so we needed to come up with a name sooner rather than later, and that's kind of what we all agreed on down the road, and so that was the, uh, you know, the genesis of that. It was really the sort of street in the box, even though we weren't from the, uh, the street in the box, as Pete Fortale, late Pete Fortale said, all those years I thought you guys were from the Bronx, and you weren't. You were from Mount Vernon. So, huh. so, so why, I'm trying to ask questions that I didn't ask Steve, of course. <laughs> Steve's been on the show, so um, I'm trying to bounce around here a little bit. But um, why did you guys break up? Well, it was, um, I don't know if Steve mentioned, but you know, we, we went through a sort of succession of bass players. I don't know whether he covered that. No, no, um, I mean, we didn't go into that. You know when he when he talked to you, but um, but um, you know Gil kind of left the group. Um, uh, was asked to leave the group after the uh, the song had kind of be, you know had sort of become a hit and maybe was on its way back down or whatever. But and that was and for no you know reason other than just there were some issues. Just that you know Steve and I sort of hung out together and Gil was kind of more of a let's just say a loner and did kind of his own thing and we never kind of knew when he was going to show up or it was just, a, you know, the idea of being a, um, um, well, I wouldn't even call it just, um, undependable just so much as erratic, you know, so we just didn't know, you know, you know, when you're younger, you know, you think, well, they have to keep tabs on people or whatever. And I, you know, he was the youngest of the group. And I think, you know, in retrospect, maybe, you know, he would have done things differently. And, we just couldn't tell, you know, we'd be waiting and we'd be flying on one plane, he'd be on another plane. And, and, and so we went to, we used the Paul, um, you know, Paul Reich, you know, team, and who's, you know, with us now uh, since we got back together. And, and he replaced, uh, replaced Gil, and then he decided to stay in Colorado. He went on a visit to Colorado and then decided to stay there. So we replaced him with um, Larry, um, Larry Muller, who was the, um, brother of uh, a girl that Steve was dating at the time and so we had him so we went through kind of a succession and but and then by the end of we were playing we were playing like a little bit you know college colleges here and there and it was down to just Steve and I playing so Steve was playing piano I was playing acoustic guitar you know amplified and um, as we got further and further from the um, Buddha album where Buddha you know, was supposed to give us a, a second album but they kind of you know, reneged on that by just, they were calling the reissue of the, the of the album that Kenny Rogers had produced, where we re-recorded a few songs and then added, you know, one song. They were, you know, considering that the second album, which of course it really wasn't. Uh-huh. And uh, so we never had that third album. And without the, you know, there were there were two, um, you know, singles that came out after uh, Back My Hair Was Short, and neither did any, you know did anything on the charts and got very little airplay. There was Ford to start a Cadillac and then she made a man out of me. And um, so basically as the years kind of went on, you know, we would sort of, you know, like two little ladies, Steve and I would talk on the phone and she would say, well, you know, Paul Colby's not, he's not doing anything for us. He runs the club, but, he's, you, know, he, you know, we can't get any record deal. And we'd audition for different people and kind of the studio with some people and tried to get things going, but nothing seemed to gel. And so we were really kind of left just sort of, um, uh, you know, talking on the phone, saying, "Well, I don't know what to do." You know, we were just sort of drifting. And um, Steve had a job where he worked um, with his father, who had was making some uh, uh, products that were um, 
through the use of the New York City transit system and their like chemical products and mm-hmm. pharmacists. Yeah. And so he had like another job and I really didn't have anything else to do beyond the music. I mean, I had a, you know, a degree, but um, it was in English, which is sort of a catch all. And, and I was thinking, well, I was go to graduate school or whatever. And uh, it was just by chance that, um, uh, you know, I, I reconnected with uh, Neil Diamond's producer, Tom Cavamana, who was at the time was originally, which is when I was in college, I moved back to New York to go to NYU because uh, I thought that um, I was going to sign a contract with this Armada Productions, which was Tom Catalano and Neil Diamond and maybe some other person that uh, I was going to be like a staff writer, and that kind of led to me ending up playing the bitter end and, and bringing Steve down and playing my songs. And it was kind of a roundabout thing, but I reconnected with Tom Catalano, was living out in Los Angeles on a boat. And he had a, a label called Tomcat Records, which I don't know whether you were calling it. I, mean, I think he had Julie Douglas on the label, and he really never did anything. He had a cool label with like an orange crate. And uh, I went out to California. I played on a bunch of songs I had written. Um, you know, in the interim, um, from uh, you know when we were just sort of waiting to see if we were doing some new songs I had done. And he said, "Oh, you know, these are great." And where were you when I started the record label? And so I decided to move out to California. And so I, you know, one day I just said to Steve, I think I really got to pursue this thing and just kind of go back to where I started and just try and, you know, do this as a songwriter and, you know, a guy who sings some songs, you know, that he writes. And so I did that. I wasn't aware that uh, Tom Calano was, you know, ready to go bankrupt. He was like $2 million in debt. And, um, and so I came out to California and ended up having nothing to, uh, you know, recording things. So I started, you know, going to different places, A&M. And, Whatever, just playing songs and trying to get a songwriting deal, but nothing ever happened there. And in the meantime, I asked another friend who worked for ABC and in uh, children's programming if she knew of anybody that needed, you know, needed if she knew of anybody that was looking for someone, you know, to work. And um, she said, well, there was some you know, Hanna Barbera had an opening, but it was in the mail room, so it was like, you know, changing water bottles and punching animation paper. So I started, you know, doing that. And then just doing my uh, music interview things and playing the blah blah, which is a little club I think where Al Jarrell started. And um, I was doing that while still um, pursuing the music. And then as I started sitting in the main stock room, I was touching the animation paper, I started to read some of the scripts. And I said, well, I think I can maybe write some of the stuff. So I started submitting ideas. And um, next thing I know, I sold one idea for a. Um, uh, for a show, I think it was the Buford Files or whatever. It was part of a 90-minute show that Hannah Barbera had done. And then my big break came when I was writing some, uh, I submitted some ideas for a new podcast show, which still had Jack Mercer, was still alive at the time, so he was doing the voice, and it was it was great. So, uh, of course, the first thing I wrote was Spinach Fever, which was, you know, the spinach ended up on the turntable, and the needle opened up the spinach can, and Popeye, you know, was John Travolta, and you know, ended up eating it and beating the heck out of Bluto. And, uh, and, and I ended up doing like 13 of those for CBS the first year. And from then on, I, was, I ended up being on staff. I worked on the Smurfs from the first year it started back in, uh, I think it was 81. And that became uh, my full-time job, and the music just kind of went away, except every now and then I put lyrics in for a Smurfs song or for, you know, for, uh, or for, or for the Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island, which I wrote later on, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, Tom Snow ended up doing the music for those, and uh, it was, uh, I just kind of switched careers, mm-hmm. and it was, it, no one was more amazed than I was, because I wasn't sure that, you know, I, I knew that I could, you know, 
you know, talk and make a joke or whatever, people would laugh, but I would not not sure I could write stuff down, um, beyond writing songs or whatever and, and, and do that. But um, I started writing and uh, it seemed to work out okay and uh, never thought I'd be working doing pop like cartoons and uh, but I just wrote them and there were puns in them and I just wrote them the way I kinda like to see them and they were goofy and uh, you know, Scooby was fun to work on. I always loved mystery and I always loved horror and science fiction. That was a way to blend all that in with comedy. And uh, it turned out to be a great, um, a great job. And it gave me the, um, you know, financial, financial freedom. I met my wife there at Hanna Barbera too. So I, I, I got, I always got a partner, a spouse, and a partner. But um, you know, I had the you know, had a regular steady job for uh, I think I was the last staff writer to go um, to leave Hanna Barbera when they finally got subsumed by uh, Time Warner after Turner and owned them and Great American and so it was a great place to work and you know, met a lot of interesting people doing voices, you know, because so many, you know, big names to the voices. It was uh yeah, and Shots and Winners and uh, Dick Van Dyke and it was it was it was it was it was great. Wow. Yeah. And so I think and so I think for me, you know, it was um, you know, and I think the reason that Steve was you know was so excited I think to get back into the you know into playing again and having people applauding and, and things and, and being on stage was that even though I was working kind of behind the scenes, um, you know, writing I was still you know sort of in the business and show business you know even in a behind the scenes kind of way. So I wasn't in front of people, but I was sort of you know, behind them, um, you know, when they were rehearsing the scripts and recording them and, and, and reading stuff. So I, I still was, you know, having my basking in a little glow of a, a, a show business, even if it was behind the scenes and it was an animation, yeah. um, which of course became bigger and bigger over the years and got more and more, um, you know, I would just say more ubiquitous. But Hanna-Barbera at the time was, you know, a, a huge factory churning out. Uh, tons of stuff, and so it was. Uh, it was quite wild. And well, I used to have a sign in my office that said, "All you can write at dollar ninety nine." And um, it was just an interesting time. Huh. Now, is there? That was that was a, that was a long answer, Brian, to that to that first uh, question. But that's sort of it was an opportunity that led me to California, and then that just kind of dovetailed into needing uh, to have something you know, to work on. So, you know, the Steve was working for his dad, so that, uh, and that turned out to evolve over the years, too. Mm-hmm. And we were in touch periodically when I would go back to visit my mom and, you know, and things like that. But, I mean, you know, he was, you know, you know he was got married and he was raising a family. And, and so we were, it wasn't that we ever stopped being friends. It was just been more, out, you know, out of touch, you know, building our separate, um, you know, lives, you know, on different, uh, in different coasts of the, uh, of the country. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you were writing for all these different cartoons, is, is there any one in particular that you were, you know, really excited about writing for? Well, you know, Smurfs, I never realized was, you know, was going to become such a big hit. I, I mean, that became, I became the story editor of, of the Smurfs when I went to 90 Minutes the second year. The first year, I was just writing episodes like Squeaky, you know, The Mouse That Died. It was the one that warned the village that there was a fire mm-hmm. and then died yeah. the next day. and and they used it in classes on death and dying, and it was, uh, and it was a very influential show, and and uh, so so that was really fun, and we got to go to Belgium every year and meet with Taya, who had created the Smurfs, and so that was wow. quite interesting. We got to go to Bruges, which looked like where the Smurfs would probably live. You know, if they were going to live somewhere, they would probably live in Bruges. 
just such a cool you know, ancient kind of town. And uh, so that was great. And, of course, working on Scooby, which, you know, I knew of Scooby because it was sounded before I ever got there. Scooby was created, I think, in 62. Right. But, um, but uh, you know, the whole idea, as I said earlier, of, of the things I loved when I was a kid, like, you know, reading Sherlock Holmes books and, and H.P. Lovecraft books and so, mystery, you know, so horror and mystery and comedy and you know, I Costello and Frankenstein, those are always, you know, the things that I loved when I was a kid. And so the idea to be able to blend all that stuff in, in one thing, which was kind of like Scooby, who was really only hungry or scared. Those were like basically his two emotions, and Shaggy was also hungry and scared. And um, it's amazing how you can go for like, uh, you know, 50-odd years, I do me odd, um, you know, 50-odd years with uh, just hungry and scared, uh, you know, buddies, you know, uh, getting involved. But, you know, my new wrinkle that I did when I finally got to do the um, made for... Um, DVD, Scooby Goes on the Island. I tried to make the uh, under the monsters real, and um, you know, someone pulled the head off. It wasn't a guy in a mask. The head came off, so it was actually, you know, a real zombie. So that was kind of fun. And then actually, not Hanna Barbera show that I really enjoyed working. And I wasn't the story editor, but I was working with some friends of mine, and I did about oh, I don't know if I did about five or six episodes of, um, as I say, of Disney's Dead. Mm -hmm. And uh, which was almost like a sitcom a little bit, and it was really kind of fun to write because it was, uh, well, I don't want to say it's a little more sophisticated, but, but it, it kind of was. I mean, you know, as opposed to, I mean, it was, it was, it was as close as I got to maybe writing Simpsons or something, but um, Disney's Dead was fun. I got nominated for another Emmy for that one, and also for the Dick Van Dyke. It was an adaptation of a poem written by um, a woman in, uh, I think she was in Cleveland or Cincinnati or somewhere. And uh, the town Santa forgot, which was which is about a kid that you know, like right of Santa just wanting all these toys and whatever, and the people end up Santa ends up thinking it couldn't be one kid asking for this, or it has to be, you know, it has to be a town, and it turns out to be a very poor town, and so Santa's delivering all this stuff. So the kid, you know, was selfish, but his selfishness ended up causing you know these kids a lot of joy. And so that was on me for an uh, It turned out that Santa could never done an animated. So, you know, obviously he's done, you know, um, I think Pete's Dragon or whatever, but he never done, I think, a TV show. So he bought a video camera and he was videotaping us, you know, <laughs> recording people. And I was saying, no, no, we should be recording you. But he was, uh, he was tremendous. And Paul Williams was one of the owners. And it was uh, one of the guys from, um, oh, gosh, was it, um, what was it? Was it the, no, the Go-Go's, uh, Jamie Newton, I think, was also, you know, played one of the owners. Huh. And um, yeah, it was um, it was great. So honestly, that I mean, those three that I got nominated for would obviously, um, you know, are you know, kind of close to my heart. But Scooby, it was really it was really fun because it really brought together all the stuff that I really you know like, which is horror, mystery, and comedy. And then along the way, there was some that was obviously very challenging. And, um, you know, ones where you had a few like snorks, such as obviously snorks with like hoses on their heads. Right, yes. Um, <laughs> you know, there were things where, you know, like let's develop a show about a talking desk. And, um, you know, sometimes you get concepts for them where you go kind of really, but, you know, Pink Panther and Sons, you know, I said, but the Pink Panther doesn't talk. So obviously, you know, Pinky did have to talk because otherwise we would be doing pantomime. But, um, it was a very fun environment, I mean, to be there and watch the actors come in and get all these different uh, creative things. And, you know, we, I worked on developing the Bible for the, the Flintstone kids, which is the Flintstone house, a lot of everything, which 
care of you mother babies or folks like kids or um so that was kind of the rage. And it was just working in different um different genres kind of under the same roof and it was kind of like a family business, even though I grew up in Italy, so I don't have a barbarian it was um we still Bill and Joe were there, so it was, you know, when I say Slim was there, I worked with him on a Pink Captain and Sons, and he was, of course, as a character. And Tex uh, Avery was there for a while, and literally almost, I guess, almost died his death. He went to the hospital and they never came back. And um, he was, like, legendary. So it was, it was really, really, really kind of fun. Hmm. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now, as far as the album every 40 years, are we going to have to wait another 40 years for more new music, or do you guys think you're going to do any more? <laughs> yeah, I said, I said to Steve, I said, if we wait another 40 years, it's going to get really ugly. <laughs> um, you know, every, every, uh, every 80 years. Um, no, I think we're going to try and get in again and, uh, and record some more just because we had such a good time. Um, you know, we were really, we were cracking up in the studio. I mean, there's some footage of, Unless, you know, Steve's, you know, had tears in his eyes, was like, like rolling on the floor, I guess, and, you know, just being together, you know, and making music and stuff, and then actually having a sound, like, we really started, like, so we were playing it, and I said, this really sounds good, and I just, like, losing my hearing, or does it actually sound, you know, pretty good, and I may get some new techniques to record it or whatever, um, uh, but it was just, um, really fun to be back in there. I mean, we never, you know, we just said, let's do this one, let's do this one. Let's, and we never said, like, you know, should we take this one off the album or on the album? It's, you know, we were controlling our own destiny. It wasn't like, you know, we had to look for singles or is this going to be a single and what's this going to be? And it's funny because then everything passes, which, you know, leaves the album and um, almost became, it was written, you know, years before we got back together to record, but it was, it, it wasn't written when we were still playing Live, it was in, like in between. I remember my mom had, you know, heard it one time. I was playing the song. She says, "Has anybody heard this song?" This house me. Well, you know, it's all about getting older and having these pairs of glasses all over the house. And I mean, it's just inspired by the stuff that no one ever tells you when you're younger that you know you're not going to be able to see. Or you're not going to, you know, you you know, it would be like a, no one wants to spoil your uh, your day, I guess. But, uh, and so that kind of led off the album and, and it almost kind of encapsulated the idea of coming back around to doing the stuff you always love to do. And, um, and it just kind of, I'm still looking at inside, whereas everybody still feels like they're young, but they look in the mirror and they seem like, who the heck is that person? It looks like my dad, you know? Right. Like, <laughs> it could be very, you start to become a philosopher, as, as I always tell people, I'm an elder statesman, and you say, like, you're old, and somebody said, no, you're not old, you're vintage. I said, vintage is good. That sounds like a good, a good <laughs> thing. But it's, um, yeah, it was um, it was really fun to get back, and get back together with the guys. I mean, that was something very, very unexpected and very, very, um, very, very cool. And you see the enjoyment, you know, on these kids' faces and stuff, you know, that, that, you know when they hadn't, you know, seen them play, and, 
Um, we just sort of like a, like a different memory, you know, and, and now actually being out there in front of people. And people still remember the song and still respond to the music, which is very gratifying. And, yeah, and same thing with when people like the cartoons and stuff. I mean, there's a whole faction of people that are really into Scooby Doo and the Ghouls. They, up in Canada, they get dressed as the characters, you know, the Ghouls, the Girl Ghouls, and, and uh, people submit submit artwork from uh, from all over. I mean, it's you know, they have lives that you don't even know that they're having. I mean, I was totally unaware of that. And people were listening to you know the SWAT cats, watching SWAT cats in uh, in Iran. I read somewhere online. People reviewing stuff. I mean, it's just it's very very interesting. You don't really realize how many lives you touch. You know. Yeah. And uh, I was in a group one day, and somebody you know said, uh, "Oh, I was stalking you." And I said, "Yeah." I said, "You were." And uh, she said, yeah. And, and I said, well, was it good stalking or, or bad? You know? And I said, have you, you seen some of those cartoons that I've written and stuff? So I've seen them. You know, the, the, you know the, that was my whole life growing up. I thought, well, I'm not responsible for any damage, you know, that might have happened you know, along the way. But, um, you know, people are just more fond of remember that stuff. And they, uh, I mean, they're signing posters for Scooby-Doo's on the island, and, and, you know, which is really old. Been out for um, you know going on twenty you know twenty years and ended up selling like three million plus copies and you know, VHS and DVD. Mm-hmm. They show it on TV all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And every now and then a little ask up check, you know, arrives enough to buy me a slice of pizza or something. <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's it's more than that. It's just really feeling that you know people remember the stuff that you do and remember it fondly. You know, I mean, obviously there's probably people that maybe don't remember it as fondly, but um, it was finally right, and I think maybe that um, that translates to also in the music when you do it, when you're having a good time, and when you're, you know, you're really, you know, sort of passionate about the stuff that you do, and you really enjoy making music, and I think it carried through the audience. I know we always had good reactions when we played live, so or half a live, as the, uh, the case may be. Hmm. Now, Glenn, who were your inspirations when you were in the music, you know, early music in, uh, inspirations? Well, you know, the early stuff, I have to confess, were, um, I mean, obviously I liked the Beatles when they came along, but, you know, early on I was really into, um, you know, Bobby V, and so, you know, you know, obviously Buddy Holly, he was a little earlier than when I first started listening to mm-hmm. the music, but, um, you know, Bobby V and Gene Pitney, um, and I think the reason I, I maybe liked this stuff so much was because so much of it was written by, uh, well, you know, Bobby Lee's and you know, a lot of Carol uh, King and Terry Goffin songs. Right. And uh, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde songs. And, and there's some of the, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, crickets, you know, uh, you know uh, Sonny Curtis and uh, Jerry Allison. Um, had written stuff, and I was really into Burt Backrack stuff because I just love the way these, you know, the melodies and stuff were, were great on the lyrics. So a lot of Dionne Ward, just because I love the Dionne, the uh, Burt Backrack stuff so much. And so I found myself kind of influenced more by the songwriters and, and stuff. I mean, I love the Hollies. I thought they were great. I love the harmonies. Um, a lot of those British groups were great. You know, the Beatles, um, Bridget Kramer. Even Shredding and the Dreamers, I mean, some of the songs, that, you know, were just great. Uh, so, basically, you know, that, that was kind of the, um, I guess you might call it wimpy or more rock, and, and uh, it wasn't really, I mean, I wasn't R&B stuff particularly, it was really more of a songwriting, like a real building kind of, kind of thing. 
And then obviously, you know, there's Lloyd's Bright and Edgar Simon about local stuff. And then mm-hmm. Dylan, but in a more peripheral, you know, way, I would say Simon got more, you know, the, the songs were, uh, you had more harmony to them and stuff like that. But, you know, the searchers, um, trying to think of some of the other, um, you know, the, the groups that uh, were around at the time. But I was really into all that stuff. But the Hollies were, were, were great. And so they were a big influence, and Bobby D and Gene Pitney. I mean, Gene Pitney was doing that the rhythm songs. I mean, there, you know, there was uh, there were some great songs being done, you know, back then. I mean, it was uh, it was just a great time, and you know, it won't be duplicated just because um, you know, somebody said to me, he said, "Well, you were doing music, and music was still was still fun." You know, <laughs> I said, "Well, I guess you're right because it still seemed like it was." Well, it was before it all kind of got diffused, but it was, I know all the Bee Gees too, I thought with the, I mean, they come on, they, they were there early and then also, you know, later, but um, yeah, the harmonies were great and they wrote some great tunes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that, those are kind of all uh, influences. Yeah, well, Glenn, I like to... Actually, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I was no. I was just gonna say I actually got to meet Bert Backpack once, so that was kind of you know fun. I mean, oh, not, wow. heck, not, not that he knew who the heck I was, but it was just uh, he wrote some just tremendous stuff. I mean, just a great body of work. Oh yeah. And of course, Carol King and uh, and then James Taylor. You know, was, was doing stuff around the same time we were. But I mean, his stuff is you know it's just always it's just it was great too. He actually played with Livingston Taylor, you know, his brother. Um, show for him on a, on a date in New Jersey. But, um, yeah, those were the kind of childhood influences. They were just, um, you know, really good songs. I would be hanging out in 42nd Street, which kind of, and because they had those arcades where there were these record stores that had, like, uh, you know, what were they like? I guess they were the, um, not demo records, but they were like the uh, promotional copies, you know, the mm-hmm. So I would go leafing through them, and I wouldn't sometimes be a Dick Daniel record that was written by Randy Newman or the back was, so I'd pull that, and they were like seven for a dollar or ten for a dollar. So I'd be listening to all sorts of stuff just to hear the songs that, you know, that someone wrote. So if it was written by somebody that I knew was good, even Udell Geld, you know, who wrote, uh, you know, Save Your Heart for Me and Seal with a Kiss and stuff like that. Right, and yeah. The musicals, music's a pearly. Um, those guys were great too. They did a lot of Brian Highland stuff. So if I thought something by them, and, uh, then I, I knew that it was going to be a pretty good song attached. So uh, just the college stuff, I didn't say if it would sound like something I really like, it would be typical. It's really typical, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. You know, like good typical. Right. And yeah. then uh, the Beatles, you know, kind of synthesized a lot of stuff. I mean, I like the fact that they were so varied and, and you know, it could sound, you know, so different. And harmonies uh, are good, so I love the Everly Brothers. The Everly Brothers are great tunes, mm-hmm. and um, and they did King Gotham's you know, Crying in the Rain. I mean, they did they did great stuff. And, you know, not only just by themselves, but um, by all those others, and the people buying it. It was just it was a great time for um, you know for music. You know, growing up, you really were you know felt kind of close to it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Glenn, I'd like to finish up with two final questions. Taking us away from your animation and your Gun Hill Road and every 40 years and the whole works. But when you sit back and relax, what are your favorite TV shows now and of the past? And what are your favorite movies now and of the past? Wow, Brian, that's a good, that's a good <laughs> one. And I, I, mean, I didn't have any notes to prepare me either. Right. Um, 
Okay, let me do the current ones now if I can think of. Well, obviously, I finished, I finally caught up with Game of Thrones and got to the, uh, you know, to the last of the, you know, the, the latest half of the last season. Well, that's a pretty, you know, tremendous endeavor and piece of work. But, um, kind of guilty pleasures. I mean, I kind of like, um, I watch a lot of regular, you know, TV as opposed to, like, you know, Showtime and HBO and, and, and stuff like that. Um, so I can't help you know that, but um, you know Ray Donovan, um, you know you know some guilty pleasures like Strike Back, um, which I think was on Showtime. I don't know, it's been so long ago, you know. And uh, Orphan Black and American Horror Story. I watched the first couple of seasons. I've got some of them, but I haven't watched them, you know, since then. I mean, some of the horror stuff is good. Uh, Homeland, I really like, and. Um, in the past, for TV shows, oh, you know, Thriller, um, you know, the boys call that one, the chiller of Thriller, wasn't it? And, um, yeah, Thriller and, um, Outer Limits, you know, Twilight Zone, of course. Um, sometimes, you know, I would say those, but, you know, the ones that were, you know, things that were sort of mystery, I mean, 77 Sunset Strip and all those kind of mm-hmm. yep. detective things from Warner Brothers, Surf Side 6, and, or other kind of stuff, but, you know, when I was, you know, when I was younger. Uh, Hammer films for movies, so that was kind of, the, so that's the TV one, I think, I think like that, but most of that. So, like I say, Alfred Hitchcock presents, those are all great. Um, but in terms of movies, I loved uh, horror movies, so, you know, Roger Corman was, you know, big influence. Hammer films I loved, so they were great, they were that, you know, that sumptuous, you know, saturated color. Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, those guys were great. Um, the um, movies today, well, I still go to see pretty much every horror movie I can go to see, and uh, some of them are, you know, fairly, you know, clever here and there. I mean, the first Saw movie I thought was in a twisted way, sort of pretty mm-hmm. interesting. Um, but when they, you know, when they all involve somebody with damp hair that runs behind you, you know, it's it's across the doorway. It started to get, you know, the ring and all those other ones, you know, where you have to be all similar, you know, with all, you know, little girls with their heads down with those snuggly things. But um, the early stuff, I mean, the Roger Corman stuff um, with Carl uh, Osmond and Vincent Price, all of his things, getting the kinds of them, and Theater of Blood, and the, uh, you know, Dr. Fives, those are great. Oh, yeah. Um, These, <laughs> those are some good ones. <laughs> No, and then, you know, Robert Block, I mean, actually, I got to, um, he actually was, you know, lived actually not too far from me um, in L.A., and uh, I never went to his room at home, I went to some book signings and stuff, and Psycho, of course, was, uh, I didn't see it on the original release, and I saw it kind of on the re-release, and so, um, and he was a character, he passed away kind of, not not that long after um, I was having some of these, you know, books and things on, but he was a Loved his, loved his writing. History Lovecraft, you know, no dialogue writing, but uh, I read that stuff when I was a kid, and it was, uh, you know, pretty twisted. Um, so, uh, so those kind of, so movies, you know, I still go to see most of the horror movies, so, I mean, you know, you know, I'll go to see, I'm trying to think of but, you know, I loved Alien, I thought it was great. Aliens, maybe even better. Uh, all the new kind of relaunching of the kind of, Goofy, seem to be, but um, you know, it's just you know, sci-fi horror. 
Um, oh, good mystery, a good thriller. Actually, I kind of twisted the enjoy the new Jackie Chan, you know, The Foreigner. Mm-hmm, yep. Movie with Pierce Brosnan. I thought Pierce Brosnan was actually pretty good in it, and Jackie Chan played it really straight. So that was pretty enjoyable. And uh, I thought I'd go see a movie sometimes, you know, two, you know, like a double bill, you know, two on one day or maybe even three. And then uh, it was really fun to see uh, every 40 years in the film festival and actually get to answer questions about a film instead of seeing, you know, seeing a film actually answering questions about being in a film, mm-hmm. which was cool, and then being able to play afterwards, which was really, really fun. So it's really just been um, kind of a, you know, not the culmination, it's just kind of a distillation of all this stuff. I, I always try to talk when I talk to kids at um, college level and, and they're reading Scooby books for um in elementary schools or whatever, I just try and emphasize to them that, you know, when you're doing stuff that you really love to do, whether it be painting or gardening or reading mysteries or uh, or sports or anything else, and it's really, it's great because if you can do that stuff in later life and do something that, you know, can provide you a living and and also do, you know, something you like to do, then you're so far ahead of the game. Right. And also how things that you like when you're a kid, like I like the, you know, mysteries and hard, and I never thought that Scooby-Doo was going to be in my future. Right. <laughs> you know, or Popeye for that reason. Right. For that matter. So these are all things that, you know, that you, you know, how often do you get to do that? It's like Seth MacFarlane, you know, getting to do uh, the Oracle, where you, you know, where you love Star Trek and get to do his own, you know, mm-hmm. take on something like it. And uh, at the same time, um, we both worked for Hannah Bear, Barbara at the same time, and when they were doing before the Scooby Doo on Zombie Island, there was a time when they, were, they hadn't decided yet whether they wanted to do Flintstones or whether they wanted to do Top Cat for the first uh, made for DVD, wow. or whether they wanted to do um, or Scooby. You know, they were still kind of. And so I remember going to Mr. Hannah's office to pitch him some Top Cat ideas, and Seth was coming out to see, you know, what the studio was with the same kid was just sort of starting out, you know. And I joked that, it, you know, if I'd known he was going to be so famous, I would have been nice as hell. <laughs> but, um, you know, he was just a uh, kid. They were, you know, getting, you know, more kids and catalogs and people that were uh, doing stuff and had the same agent at the time, you know. Uh, and it was, uh, it was, it was pretty interesting. It was, it, but it's weird when, you know, you start out, and I remember when I first started out writing, it was, you know, sort of being the new kid on the block, and I was getting notes and advice from people who worked on the Fleischer Popeyes, you know, mm-hmm, yep. and, uh, which, which was great. And by the end of the thing, you know, it's like, you know, you're like the old guard, and then they got new people coming in, you know, and mm-hmm. sort of getting started giving the same advice to people, you know, when I, when I do. But, but basically, the, the things that you like as a kid sometimes can come back around um, All right. and, and be something that you need to realize. So I've really been fortunate in that. And, and also, you know, to work with people that, you know, you really like, which, is, of course, is really a blessing. And, uh, and then to get back to the other people you really liked, you know, in the past, who you made music with and, uh, and done stuff with. So it's been really, really, um, you know, really been a great ride. And Steve has been, you know, thrilled about it. And so it's Paul. And it was really to see, um, you know, really to see his kids and, to see that, you know, like my mom, you know, it was one of the last concerts, um, I think of about six years ago, I mean, she was just thrilled, I mean, she was a rollator at the time or whatever, but we wheeled her in there, and I said, how were we? And she said, oh, she goes, you're wonderful, just wonderful, you know, and our old manager, you know, was having oxygen, you know, tanks and everything, but he, you know, seen him for ages, you know, and it's a tribute for him, and it was just, uh, it just really was kind of full circle, so I said, well, I guess that's going to be the 
just sort of, you know, making music again. I'm still trying to do, um, you know, movies and, and, and things. Anything that you like to do. I mean, pursue the stuff you love to do. You know, hopefully it's legal. And, uh, and uh, just, you know, it's really just, it's fun. I mean, you really have fun doing what you like to do. And, and hopefully other people will like it too. Mm-hmm. Well, Glenn, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to to share with us and about all the things you've done. You've done so much, and I uh, wish you guys luck with every forty years, and uh, and uh, we can't wait to hear some more music. Well, thanks for having me on, Brian. It's great to blather on, and thanks for letting me ramble on about all the stuff the formative influences and uh, and the new stuff that we're doing. I hope when people see them, and when you see them, that you uh, enjoy them as much as we enjoyed you know doing them. And a big thank you going out to Glenn Leopold for joining us here at On Screen and Beyond for talking about his past with the writing of Back When My Hair Was Short when he was with Gunhill Rolled back in the 70s, and they're back together again, and he's writing some new songs and music. They've had a, a album come out. They've, you know, He says they're going to talk about doing some more, and uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. There's documentary coming out about them, and that's all coming our way. Plus, he, of course, did uh, so many Scooby-Doo's and... Smurfs and all those other cartoons that he saw and wrote and, and we've seen and everything. So I really want to thank you for joining us and talking about uh, both of those things. And uh, let's see. That's it. Uh, we've got uh, the holiday season coming up and uh, everybody's going to be going out to the movies and we've got uh, guests coming your way. We uh, Boy, I, I wish I could tell you some of the people that we've got uh, connections with. Now it's just whether or not we can connect completely to do the interviews but uh, I don't want to jinx them, and uh, hopefully we'll get through. There was one that I was going to get, but unfortunately I couldn't do the interview when they could do it. And uh, But anyways, um, you know, we'll keep trying, and uh, hopefully we'll get some great guests, as we always do. We always have great guests coming your way. But, uh, you know, I just uh, try to like to get some of those uh, those people who have just been making hit movies all through, uh, you know, back in the – from the 70s till now and everything else in between. So anyways, uh, we'll see what we can do about keeping this going. And be sure to tell a friend. If you're on Facebook, like us. If you're on iTunes, leave us a review. And uh, that's it. That's a wrap for this week. So until next week, when do we once again take you on screen and beyond? I'm Brian Zemrak. Take care. <laughs>